In this episode, we talk about the confabulations that fuel conspiracy theories in the case of JFK. We want to look at why people believe in conspiracy in the face of the monumental amount of evidence that one man acting alone, Lee Harvey Oswald, committed the assassination. Now, most people aren't aware of this massive amount of evidence, and so they fall prey to others who present themselves as specialists or experts and who claim that they have the massive evidence that actually there was a conspiracy. And so what are the listeners supposed to do with this information? They could investigate the assassination on their own by simply reading one book, namely the Warren Report put out by the Warren Commission. Obviously, a reader can read that book and then decide not to believe a word of it, so it isn't really a dangerous thing to read a book. But what most people do is they rely on these so-called experts, and they don't do any reading or thinking of their own. But I want to talk in this podcast episode about a particular reason for belief in conspiracy that I think has uh, gone under the radar and deserves more attention. And that is the fact that many conspiracy buffs or conspiracy writers like to take a question that has raised another question, and they like to disregard the answers to those questions that have followed up the original question. In other words, through the last 60 years, questions have arisen when the Zapruder film is watched, for example, and those questions need to be investigated to see if they may indicate a conspiracy or if they have a logical explanation that leads to the conclusion in this particular case of evidence of no conspiracy being demonstrated by that piece of evidence. But what these conspiracy writers do is they are perfectly aware that the questions were followed up with answers in due time, answers that explain why the apparent evidence of conspiracy was in fact no evidence at all, but which they conveniently ignore. Not all writers have an historian's sensibility. In other words, not all writers are interested in the truth or are interested in telling the truth. Many writers understand that the arguments that they present have no weight once they have been investigated thoroughly, which they have been over the last 60 years. But because they like to stir controversy or make people believe that which cannot be upheld by evidence, they go right ahead and accumulate these original questions which sparked imagination and made people scratch their heads for a time until they did follow-up investigating, which ended up clearing away the confusion and proving that this apparent evidence for conspiracy was actually a misconception based on the original evidence, which has now been cleared up. Now, let me give you a perfect example. Probably the best example of this is the single bullet theory which has gotten so much attention. Now, originally, the Warren Commission could not really determine whether three shots could be fired by a single gunman 
and result in the wounds that Governor John Connolly suffered, as well as the two wounds that John Kennedy suffered at different times in the assassination sequence. And the only evidence they had to weigh the possibilities, or even to know about the possibilities, was the Zapruder film. Well, if you look at the Zapruder film, it's very clear that the first shot that hit President Kennedy may have hit Governor Connolly, but it is also very clear that the two men are reacting at different times to that shot, if indeed they were hit by the same shot. And so the Zapruder film raises the question, how can these two men be hit by the same shot when they're reacting at slightly different times. There's no doubt about it. When you look at the Zapruder film, it's very clear that John Kennedy reacts just before Connolly does, not at the same time. And so it appears that they must be reacting to two different shots, either two different shots fired by the same gunman or two shots fired by different gunmen in which case, if that's the case, there had to be a conspiracy. Well, if you just look at the Zapruder film, the case for conspiracy seems quite strong. That's because there are nine frames after JFK is clearly reacting to the shot that hit him as he was emerging from behind the sign that blocked Abraham Zapruder's view of the presidential car. And so nine frames pass by before John Connolly even begins to react to a shot. The question is, that sounds like a lot of frames. And therefore, that sounds like a lot of time. And yet, nine frames equal one half second. And the FBI determined that nobody could work the bolt on the assassination rifle or the alleged assassination rifle and fire off two shots in less than 2.3 seconds. And so a half a second is obviously a lot less than 2.3 seconds. Therefore, conspiracy writers continue to claim that there had to be two gunmen because Oswald could not have fired two shots in one half second. Well, first of all, that's quite true. Oswald could not have fired off two shots in one half second. But that's where the conspiracy buffs stop. Not because they don't know the explanation, the logical explanation for how Oswald could still have fired the shot that struck both men at this time, but because they don't want their readers to know that there's a logical explanation. They want to confuse the reader. They want the reader, for whatever reasons they might have, whether it's to sell books or to stir up controversy where controversy should not exist, who knows? But what they want to do is to convince people that there has never been an explanation for this half second other than there must be two gunmen. But that simply isn't the case. Here is the explanation, and it's quite simple. Kennedy was struck in the neck, and the bullet exited his throat. That bullet did not hit any bone, 
And that's one of the reasons it could emerge and strike Governor Connolly, which also just nicked a bone in Connolly's body, exited his chest, and then eventually lodged itself in his lower left thigh. But the question is, what could explain the differential time reactions of the two men? And it's quite simple. When the bullet passed through Kennedy's neck, it engaged the spinal cord. The vibrations from the bullet were so close to the spinal cord, although it didn't hit the spinal cord, that the vibrations injured the spinal cord and caused what was called in the medical community a Thorburn reaction, where involuntarily the arms fly up and the hands draw back into a locked position in front of the president's throat. This is entirely caused by a spinal reaction that is unmediated by the brain. The spine does not need to send signals to the brain to cause the hands to fly up because this is not a pain mediation. Kennedy began reacting instantaneously to the bullet that struck him and passed through his neck. And so his arms began to fly up and lock in a position in front, not on, but in front of his throat. And during this period of time, Kennedy felt no pain because there was no mediation of that pain. Pain takes time to register. And that's because the impulses have to go to the brain, the brain has to process the information, and reproduce the reaction in the form of pain. That would take about one half second, or nine frames. Now, when the bullet struck John Conley, it was yawing. That is, it was turning end over end between the throat exit from Kennedy and the entrance into the upper right back of Connolly. By the way, the bullet had to hit Connolly because Connolly was directly on the line of trajectory between the sixth floor window and Connolly's back with JFK exactly in between on that trajectory. If the bullet had not hit Connolly, it would have been found somewhere in the car or it would have hit somebody else in the car, which it did not do. When the bullet passed through Conley, it's critical that you know that it exited his chest and caused his right lapel to flap upward, something that is captured on the Zapruder film at the exact moment when Kennedy is first reacting to the shot. So what we have is evidence for when the second shot, as we now know it to be, struck both Kennedy and Connolly. It struck Kennedy and Connolly on frame 223 as the president was exiting from the highway sign that blocked Zapruder's view. And just as we see JFK's hands beginning to rise, we see we see Connolly's we see Connolly's right lapel snap upward and we know that that was the second shot. But there are nine frames after that lapel flew upward when Connolly is not reacting because he has not had his spinal cord engaged. In fact, 
Only one bone in the rib was slightly nicked, and since there was no neurological reaction to this shot, pain would cause the reaction. Pain would take one half second to register, and indeed, one half second after frame 223, we see Connolly reacting violently to this second shot. So here we have a perfectly excellent explanation for the fact that you have two men reacting at slightly different times, not much, one half second, to the very same shot. Here's how long one half second takes. A lot of times people say 1,001 to represent one second. Well, listen to this. 1,000. That's how long a half a second is. So you can see that although pain takes time to register, it isn't much time. But people are confused because it takes nine Zapruder frames. And that seems, if you just go by the number, to be a lot of frames. But 18 frames go by in one second. And so it isn't a lot of time. So now that you see this evidence, this evidence which was accumulated in the early years after the assassination, although the lapel flap evidence was not noticed until quite a few years after the assassination, you can see that there is a perfectly valid explanation. And you can also see that since we have a valid explanation for the idea that the single bullet caused both men's injuries, the evidence for Oswald being the lone shooter becomes much more convincing. Because let's suppose he wasn't the sole shooter in spite of the fact that all this evidence points to Oswald. Then you have a situation where you have tremendous amounts of evidence that point only to Oswald. And the simplicity argument is that a simpler argument is much more likely to be true than a complex, labyrinthine, Byzantine argument. So if the single bullet theory is correct, which all the evidence suggests that it is, you have to explain why it is necessary to have other assassins when all the evidence, the only evidence we have, points to the probability of just one man. They don't provide evidence of their own. Their evidence is the fact, as they put it, the single bullet theory cannot be true. That is, the idea that two men can be hit by the same bullet cannot be true because the two men are reacting at different times. That is a ship that has sailed. That argument has been disproven to a fare thee well. And yet they don't tell you what the argument on its behalf is because they don't want you to understand you have to ask yourself, why don't these writers at least bring up the possibility that there is an explanation for why two men could be hit by the same bullet, in spite of the fact that they seem to be reacting, and indeed are reacting, at slightly different times? They don't want you to hear that, because they have no rejoinder to the answer that I've just given. And you should ask yourself, hmm... If they have no rejoinder to that, what does that say about their own confidence in the validity of their overall argument? 
which is that there was a conspiracy. Could it be that they themselves don't believe there is a conspiracy? That's what I suspect is at work here, because there's a lot of motives beside telling the truth for writers to write and to write books that they hope to sell and make a lot of money by or generate controversy in American society that's not based on any empirical data. Someday I might devote a whole episode to these half-story hoaxes, as I call them. Stories in which you're only told half the tale. Not because they don't know the rest of the tale, but because they don't want you to understand that there's nothing there, there's no there there in their stories that try to generate suspicions of conspiracy. There are literally dozens of these tales And what disgusts me so much about the tellers of them is that they know what the truth is. They know what the rest of the story is. But they also know that the people listening to them are not aware of the entire story. And they're not about to tell them it because they want to exploit the fact that these people don't know the whole story for their own selfish advantage. If you think about it, It's absolutely reprehensible that people try to manipulate other people just because they can't live a decent life telling the truth. But to give you a sense of this, let's talk about another example, the so-called Grassy Knoll shooter. Well, nobody ever saw anyone shooting from the Grassy Knoll. Not one person identified anyone or even said they saw anybody shooting from the grassy knoll. If there had been a shooter at the grassy knoll, don't you think that Abraham Zapruder, who was standing just feet away on the pylon, would have heard such a shot? But Zapruder said he saw no shooter, heard no shot from the grassy knoll, and could not identify the source of the shots he could hear. But there are other reasons why we know there was no grassy knoll shooter. The main one is that Kennedy's wound that killed him traversed the right side of his head from back to front. The left side of his head and the left side of his brain was undamaged by a bullet. And yet a shot from the grassy knoll would have crossed Kennedy's skull from right to left and would have obliterated both his right brain and his left brain. It also would have emerged to pose a clear and present danger to Mrs. Kennedy, who, of course, was not wounded in the assassination. Therefore, these basic laws of physics disprove the idea of a grassy knoll shooter. And because of this difficulty, the conspiracy fabulists went on to make another claim— They claimed that the bullet that was fired from the grassy knoll must have been a dum-dum bullet that simply exploded inside the president's head and disappeared, and all evidence of which must have then disappeared. So we're asked to believe that the conspirators fired from the grassy knoll a bullet that was meant to stop at the right side of the president's head, explode there, and then disappear as dum-dum bullets are supposed to do. This might be believable in science fiction, but it's an obvious ploy 
to try to explain the unexplainable, why or how a shot from the grassy knoll could strike President Kennedy in the right side of his head and then go no farther. Notice that this explanation only appeared when it became obvious that the laws of physics prevent a shot fired from the right side of President Kennedy's head to traverse only his right side of the head from back to front. So there are many other half-story hoaxes, and perhaps we'll have an entire episode on some more. But we have other things to talk about that are more valuable than trying to clear up the confusion of the conspiracy fabulists. I hope this episode has shown, however, that these half-story hoaxes do exist and that they're easily debunked if one just takes a look at the whole story. This is Rick Ryman. Thanks for listening.